Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here's your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. Welcome to the Drop Time Report. On this week's episode, we're going to have on professional archer John Schaefer. John Schaefer is not only a pro archer, but he's also a guy who makes a living in the archery industry. He has a pro shop in Burnsville, Minnesota, which is right outside Minneapolis. Uh, He also makes sights and rests for bows. Uh, And John really is what you would call an archery guru. Uh, He's an excellent shot. And really what we're going to talk about the most today is how to increase your accuracy. And John's going to share some of his tips about form and how to hold a bow and how to practice in an effort to really increase your downrange accuracy. He regularly shoots his bow at 100 yards and thinks, uh, you know, it's something we all should strive to do. Of course, none of us are going to try to shoot, (coughs) excuse me, a whitetail at 100 yards, but he thinks we all should strive to, you know, really um, be accurate enough to have a pretty tight group at 100 yards. And uh, we're going to just break down all the ins and outs of what it takes to do that. Before we get John on the show, I'd like to thank my sponsors, my title sponsor, Redneck Blinds, uh, Fourth Arrow Camera Arms, Winsent, Morel Targets, check out their high roller target, Huntworth Clothing, Pine Ridge Archery, Lucky Buck Mineral, we're going to give away some Lucky Buck today, Grim Reaper Broadheads, Schaefer Performance Archery, Illinois Connection in Pike County, Illinois, Outdoorsman's, uh, makers of high-end backpacks and tripods, and Wilderness Athlete. If you need to shed a few pounds, check out wildernessathlete.com. My favorite product of theirs is their Hydrate and Recover drink. I take it often. If you want to try it, go to wildernessathlete.com, enter drop 10 at checkout, and receive a discount. Now let's go ahead and get John on the show. Welcome to the Drop Time Report, John. How are you today? Doing fine, Tracy. How are things in Michigan? Oh, they're cold, but that's something you're familiar with. <laughs> yeah, we get a little bit of that here in Minnesota. Um, so you've been a uh, you know a Matthews dealer and a PSE dealer and a Hoyt dealer and a big pro shop for for a couple decades, and you've been a pro shooter yourself. And you set up you know thousands of bows, and I, I'm sure you see guys have you know the best equipment. But sometimes in the woods, maybe they fail or on the range, they make the same mistakes. So, you know, everybody wants to be a better shooter and they want to be able to get the job done when a buck's standing in front of them. Uh, So today I just want to talk about maybe some of the mistakes uh, that you see people make and some of the ways to improve upon your shooting skills. Sure. You know, and these are things... Uh, that we talk about on an almost, especially during hunting season, we talk about on almost a daily basis uh, in the shop. And, you know, I guess if I were going to put my finger on a couple things, that the, the num- number one would be making sure that you're shooting your broadheads and your bow in the way that you're going to hunt with it a lot. Because many times when we're talking to a customer and they're, trying to figure out what happened and why the arrow didn't go through and why they didn't find the deer. Um, Our first question is always, did you shoot your broadheads? And many, many, many of them have not shot their broadheads. And the ones who say that they have 
when you ask a few more questions, you find out that they might have shot one or two at 20 yards, um, and their expectation is that they're going out and shooting a white-tailed deer at 40 or 50 yards with a broadhead that they've never even shot at that distance. So that's that's a you know that's something that we just see certainly weekly. Sometimes it seems like daily we have that conversation. And at the heart of that is it guys believe maybe the advertising that hey my my broadhead's going to fly just like my field point and they just believe it wholeheartedly so they never practice with a broadhead. It's a variety of things. I mean, certainly that. I mean, every package of broadheads you buy now says they fly like your field point. We know that none of that is true. Um, but also, you know, let's face it, broadheads are expensive, and guy walks out the door with three broadheads that he just paid $45 for, and he's not real interested in going out and destroying, you know, several $15 broadheads. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, shooting broadheads is 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 you know, you got to kind of commit to doing it. You know, you're not just going to take your broadheads and shoot them into a bag target. You've got to buy a special target. Uh, you're going to go through some broadheads. If you're shooting them to the extent that you should, you're going to go through a lot of broadheads. I mean, I have, you know, throughout the summer when I'm getting ready, which seems to be perpetual, um, when I'm shooting my hunting bow, I very rarely ever even shoot a field point. So I'll have a dozen or so broadheads. Um, and that's, all that I shoot with, you know, I don't, I don't shoot all day, every day, but I try to shoot several times a week. And even if it's just getting up in the morning and shooting a dozen arrows off the deck, uh, those are all broadheads and I've shot them for months and months in a variety of conditions, all different winds, um, all different temperatures, you know, all the things that you're going to see out there in, in the woods and out in the field. So, you know, exactly what they're doing and all broadheads, no matter how many hours or days you spend tuning your bow, they all fly differently than your field points at some point or in some conditions. They're just aerodynamically totally different, and the only way to know is to get out and spend some serious time shooting them. Yeah. Now, you personally shoot a fixed blade, right? You're you're not a mechanical guy? So, I, I, yeah, currently, when I say currently, the last 15 years I've been shooting fixed blade heads. Um, prior to that, you know, back in the early days, we all started out with fixed blade, but I did shoot expandables for about 10 years. So I shot them for a long time, shot lots of different ones and had, had good luck with them. I mean, the expandables are and can be very good. I personally like the small fixed blade heads. Um, as you may know, I've shot a lot of different species, you know, on the continent and some big stuff, some little stuff and everything in between. And I just personally feel that you're better off taking a small broadhead, punching it all the way through and out the other animal. Um, you know, when given the option of shooting a big broadhead that may not penetrate all the way or take a small broadhead that goes through in and out both sides, I take the latter every time. Mm -hmm. But even when you're shooting mechanicals, you were shooting broadheads into targets, Absolutely. even though, you know, yeah. Absolutely. You know, they're, 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 you know, even the best mechanicals are pretty aerodynamically dirty compared to a field point. And so you can get them to hit dead on at, you know, especially the close distances. That's not much of a problem. But when you get farther out, they do have quite a bit more drag and they do hit lower than a field point. So you, you still have to do that. And that's, that was really one of the things um, that led me to change is because I was shooting, you know, because I 
primarily shoot broadheads out of my hunting bow, it's a lot more fun and a lot easier to shoot fixed blade heads than it is to practice with a bunch of expandables. I mean, they're just uh, a little more durable. You're not dealing with blades, you know, bending and filling grooves, filling up with foam and all the kind of crap that you have to deal with shooting expandables. So, and so let, let's of, talk a variety of reasons that, that I, that I like the fixed blade heads. And you're known as a guy who will take, you know, a longer distance shot and explain maybe, you know, the distance at which you practice in order to hone sure. your skills to be able to take a 50 yard shot in the field. Sure. So, so, so a couple things that I always like to preface this with is, you know, I do shoot far and I shoot far with broadheads and, and virtually every day I shoot at a hundred yards, um, with broadheads. Um, you know, most days can shoot really nice groups at that. However, you know, people ask me that a lot. They say, you know, how far will you shoot an animal? There's a big difference when you're hunting a whitetail or when you're hunting, say, an antelope or a caribou. Most people know that if you hit, it, hit a whitetail poorly, they're going to run and hide in the nastiest, inaccessible crap you can find. Swamps, you know, creek beds, ravines, they go and run for cover when they're wounded. And everybody also knows that whitetails are super cagey animals. I mean, they're, when, when you're hunting those things, they're always on eggshells. We all know they can duck the shot. Um, and so how far I shoot at an animal is really dependent on what animal it is. I mean, I've shot probably 100 whitetails in my life. I certainly don't need a whole hand to, tell it, to count the ones that were over 30 yards. I mean, most of the whitetails, just like most other hunters, you're shooting basically point blank. You're aiming more down out of a tree stand than you are far away. So I don't like, you know, even from someone who, sh who shoots a lot and shoots far, I don't like shooting deer past even 20 yards, you know, 30 yards is fine. You get past that. I, I personally think you're rolling the dice and, you know, you kind of owe it to the animal for sure. And you owe it to your fellow bow hunters for sure, not to be wounding stuff and we can avoid it on other animals. You know, when you're hunting, anybody who's hunted antelope or hunted caribou or anything like that, they're out in open terrain and the animals are used to being in open terrain and they like being in the open terrain. And so on an animal like that, I'll stretch it out a lot farther. Um, and I have had some poor hits shooting really far on some of those animals, but the difference is, you know, you hit an antelope poorly, they're going to go run out in the middle of an open section where they can see, you know, a hundred miles in every direction. And they'll just lay there and eventually die. So it's pretty pretty hard for them to get away from you, um, you know, when you're hunting an animal like that. So it certainly changes, you know, the threshold changes with whatever animal you're hunting. Bears, you know, dangerous bears, the dangerous bears, but even, even black bears, the farthest I've ever shot one of those is 40 yards. You know, you, you've got a, an animal like that for other reasons. You got to make sure that that shot counts and, uh, you want to make sure you put it through both lungs so that you don't have problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those, those are just some of the things that come into mind as far as, you know, how far should we be practicing at? Just generally, I tell customers when they ask me that question, it's a good idea to practice at double the distance that you think you're going to be killing something at. 
So if you, you know, if your goal is to be able to be effective at 30, 40, 50 yards, my opinion, you best be practicing at, you know, 60, 80 or hundred yards. Psychologically, it'll make those closer shots seem a lot easier. Things show up at extended distances that you aren't going to see shooting at 20 yards all day. You know, if you have little gremlins that are creeping into your form or your setup, you're going to see those, believe me, at 70, 80, 90, 100 yards, you're going to see those inconsistencies that you may not see or notice or be aware of at, you know, 20 or 30 yards. Mm-hmm. What are the uh, biggest things you see now that we're talking about that? You know, what are the things in a guy's form or habits that cause his arrows to go all over the place at 60, 80 yards? Well, I'll say this, you know, in our our pro shop, we've we've got a range here. And we see guys all the time who will come in here, cannot shoot all their arrows in the white bullseye on an NFAA target, which is about a three-inch bullseye. And those same guys will tell us that they're out shooting deer at 70, 80, 90 yards you have to have realistic expectations, right? So, so accuracy, all else being equal, which it never is once you start getting outside with wind and, you know, the sun and nerves and all those sorts of things that come in to negatively affect the shot. But mathematically accuracy is a cone, which means that if you're shooting a three inch group at 20 yards, all else being equal, you're shooting a six inch group at 40 yards and at 80 yards, you're shooting a 12-inch group. So, Interesting. So, you know, when, you, when you're kind of assessing your, your shooting and what your capabilities are, you know, that's some simple math that you can apply. And we know that it's going to be even worse than that when you start factoring in wind. The other thing that I always like to remind customers of is that you're not going to get, at least I've never gotten, my best shot when I'm out in the field. Because of all of those things that we just talked about that negatively affect the shot, wind and nerves and um, you know animals moving around and all that sort of stuff, you're never going to get your best shot out in the field. And for me personally, it seems like I always get my worst shot. So what I'm talking about is if you're shooting at 50 yards, and you're putting them all on a paper plate, but every once in a while you get one that's outside of the paper plate, that's the one you got to kind of count on that you're going to get in the field. You're going to get the one that's the farthest away. So those are just ways of kind of assessing what your real capabilities are. As far as what causes all that stuff, you know, just keeping it real simple. I mean, obviously we can go into great depth about different methods of operating the release and sophisticated aiming techniques, but just in general, most people will be just fine if they do a couple of things. And one is we preach it all day long in our store. Both of your hands need to be relaxed. You know, most people at this point with all the information out there know that your bow hand needs to be completely relaxed. You just don't torque the bow. But the one that's not talked about a lot is your release hand, which is equally or sometimes even more important than your bow hand. All of the bows now have super high let off, relatively short brace heights. And when you're at full draw, because there's so little tension in the system, because there is so much let off, it's really super easy to torque your bow left or right by squeezing the grip. 
It's also really easy to move your string around left and right by changing the way that you're holding your release. And so, you know, our simple shooting tips in the range, we tell people, make sure both of your hands are relaxed so that you're not putting any pressure left, right, or otherwise on your release. Same thing on your bow hand. And as far as running the release, my best advice is put your finger on the trigger after you've gotten to full draw and have that pin on the bullseye. Then move to put your finger on the trigger and hold it there. So you're making a deliberate act of putting your finger on the trigger. And then from there, continue to aim. And while you're aiming, you're starting to squeeze the trigger. So that it becomes the same act. So aiming and shooting are happening at the same time rather than what most guys do if you don't talk them or coach them through it. They'll put the pin on the bullseye, aim, and then they'll tell themselves they're happy with how it's aimed and how they're holding. And then they switch to saying, okay, now I'm going to squeeze the trigger. So they become two separate acts. And it's a subtle psychological, yeah, it's a subtle psychological difference. But if you can blend those together where you're continually aiming while you're squeezing, you're going to have a lot better effects. Now, obviously, you know, when I and a lot of other guys are shooting, we're using a totally different method called back tension. That's a difficult thing to talk about on a podcast. But just your average, you know, guy who wants to go out and shoot some animals and have good success, they just do those simple things. Keep both hands relaxed. Put your finger on the trigger prior to pulling it. Continue to aim. And while you're aiming, just start to squeeze you're going to do pretty well. Yep. Um, how about peep sights? You and I have talked about peep sights a lot over the years. Um, a lot of guys use a large diameter peep sight, almost as large as they can get. And obviously that costs them accuracy, right? The smaller, the better in most cases. Yeah, yes and no. You know, the, the, the peep, in my opinion, doesn't really hurt you if it's big as long as that closely matches the housing on your site. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of the sites, a lot of the hunting sites now have pin housings that are two, two and a half inches in diameter. When you're at full draw, you should be able to see the entire housing through your peep site and just a little bit of air around it. Um, and so, you know, when you're using that kind of a halo type site arrangement where you're not centering the pin in the peep site, you're instead centering the housing in the peep, you can be really accurate and still have a nice big peep that'll let you um, be able to see in low light conditions. Now, uh, it's time to maybe plug your rest a little bit and and that's not the intention of the whole podcast, but you know, one issue a lot of bow hunters have is they, they just take the rest from their previous bow. They put it on a new bow and that newer bow is a lot faster. Um, and a lot of the arrow rests available today simply can't handle the speed of today's bows and they just assume that if they're using a drop away it's getting out of the way in time but you know high speed cameras tell otherwise kind of explain you know your rest the xv maybe how it's different and how guys can tell if their rest is getting in the way of aero flight sure so you know we, we do manufacture the xv rest and we've physically tested it up over 400 feet a second so we don't have you know be pretty unlikely if everything is in order, it'd be pretty unlikely to have any contact with our rests. But some of the things that we see with some of the other rests now and over the years, 
if you're getting any, you know, obviously the, the, the point of a fall away rest is, is twofold, right? So most people just assume that a fall away rest is better, but they oftentimes don't understand what the advantage of the fall away is. One advantage of a fall away is that it clears your veins or feathers so that they can pass through the rest without touching anything. We've actually been doing that for years and years. Now, even with the old TM style rests, you could get the arrow to go through there without touching the veins or the feathers. Uh, if everything was aligned right, a little trickier to do, but you could do it. And we've been doing that for decades and decades. My opinion, the bigger advantage of a fall away rest is that it allows the arrow to get out of the bow without being touched by anything other than the string. So it gets out of the, gets out of the bow with way less contact on the shaft. And so like with our XV rest, and we do extensive testing. You guys have seen a lot of that stuff on our, on our websites. But with a high-speed camera, you can look at our rest and how that works. It's touching the arrow for six, seven, eight inches, the beginning of the shaft, and then it opens up and doesn't touch anything else for the rest of the ride. And back in my days of shooting competitive target archery and looking at those with high-speed cameras, I know firsthand that if you can get that arrow off of the rest quicker, that it's going to be a more forgiving setup, forgiving meaning that the system, the setup will be more tolerant of inconsistencies in the shooter than it would be otherwise. And so my opinion is that you want to get an arrow, a bow and arrow setup so that that arrow gets off that rest quickly. In other words, we don't want that arrow to ride the rest the entire way. You know, some of the rest don't move. Um, so the arrow is, in contact with the rest the entire time. That would be, in my opinion, the worst for accuracy. Another rest out there force the arrow. They're still fall away type rests, but they force the arrow to stay in contact up until right before the back end of the arrow, and then they drop out of the way at the last second. That, of course, is fine for vein clearance. It makes the bow paper tune real easy, but it's not going to be very tolerant of shooter inconsistency. And a lot of them aren't getting out of the way of the veins in time, correct? I wouldn't say a lot because, uh, you know, certainly that, that's a problem. And, and really with the traditional followers, which we used to manufacture, um, bounce back is always a problem. Um, it's an inertial problem with the bow and the string moving in the same plane that the rest is moving. And so the rest is actually doing its job in the way of the spring tension and the weight of the rest are allowing the rest to get out of the way quick enough, but then it's bouncing back up and tagging the rest on a secondary bounce and kissing the back of the arrow. And you can see that there always be most often you'll see marks on the arrow rest. You'll see marks on your veins. Um, obviously that's defeating the purpose of a follow rest. So, you know, like, like anything, you know, we tell guys all day long in the shop, the, the setup is, is so important. You know, the combination of parts, the way the stuff is installed, the way it's all tuned up, the match of the arrow and the bow and all that stuff, all that, you know, that's a different conversation, of course. But if you have a reputable pro shop in your area, they can take care of all that for you. So now, you know, let's talk about uh, buck fever or, you know, the, the pressure we put on ourselves. Being a competitive archer over the years, obviously, you figured out how to deal with that. Uh, how to block it out, whatever, when you have lots of people watching you and there's a tournament on the line. 
Um, buck fever obviously costs guys deer every year and big game every year, and it doesn't matter how accurate you are in your backyard. Uh, if you're not accurate in the woods, you're going to kill less game. What do you do personally uh, to deal with it? And, and, you know, just a little bit of background on you. You have hunted all over the place, and you've killed some pretty amazing animals and been in high-pressure situations. Uh, you know, when you have uh, a big animal in front of you, what do you do to make sure you can seal the deal? So a couple, a couple things. One of them, first of all, I, I don't consider myself a master at this. It's always a work in progress, right? I mean, we all sure. get excited when there's animals around, and that's, that's one of the reasons we do it. But I can tell you, for me personally, a couple things that really help. One is, you, when it comes time, to, you know, when you're in a high-pressure situation in a, in a tournament or a shoot-off or you've got a grizzly bear at 20 yards that you absolutely can't mess up on, you know, it's kind of the same physiological thing that happens to your body, right? I mean, our heart starts beating, our breathing gets a little weird, our muscles get kind of funny, our cognitive thought gets kind of weird. If you don't have good habits and good form where you can just allow your body to go on autopilot, that situation is going to be a lot more challenging for you. So, so really what I'm saying in a nutshell is practice and practice well and practice often so that you can just kind of go into autopilot where you don't have to think about it. You don't have to be thinking about how's my finger on the release? How are my hands on the bow? Is my peep lined up? All that should just, it really in, in those situations best to be, complete autopilot with no more thought than if you're walking across the floor. You know, I always tell guys walking is super complex. If you were to break it down and try to explain it to somebody, you know, how you have to move your toes and your heel and your knees and when you pick up one foot and when you leave the other one down, it'd be a complicated thing, but we do it every day. So even if we're nervous or have to run, we can do it without thinking about it. Shooting your bow should really be the same thing. You know, if, if you're, if you're really good at it, all those sorts of idiosyncrasies and intricacies of shooting a bow, you don't even give them a thought. And so, so that's, that's certainly part of it. But the other thing that really helped me personally is I shot a lot of years of, of tournament archery and, and anybody who shot tournament archery, even at a local shoot, if you're in a, you know, you got a round going where you're, you know, just need to shoot five more arrows, or shoot a 60 X or you're shooting for 20 bucks with your buddy that kind of pressure is very similar to what we call buck fever. And the more you put yourself in those situations, the better you're going to be able to be at handling that. So even if it's shooting for lunch money with your buddy or shooting in a local 3D tournament or shooting at a league at your, at your archery shop, your local archery shop, all those, the more you put yourself in those pressure situations, the better off you'll be. And I'll say this, you know, that's a, that's a good way to practice target archery, but also when you're hunting, we live in a day, we, we, we live in a time now where the expectation is everybody's going to go out in the tree and shoot 150 inch white tailed deer. And they're going to pass on everything else. My experience yep. growing up was, was very different than that. And I tell guys this in all honesty, most days too, when, you know, guys starting out shooting, I'd say when you're out in the woods, as long as it's legal and there's a season on it, shoot everything that walks by your stand. Because even when you're shooting at a chipmunk or a bird or a raccoon or something stupid that's walking underneath your tree stand, that's more 
practice on a live animal that's difficult to come by. So why not do it and get your reps in? Because the more you do that, when it comes time for the big leagues and you got to shoot something really big and cool, you're going to be way better under pressure than you would be had you not done that. It's just practice. So, um, yeah, that is a, a sad thing I see. Uh, speaking at game dinners, you know, you'll have kids or, or young people come up to me or even older guys, you know, and, and they're holding out for that 150. And as a result, they haven't shot many things because they're holding out for the buck that doesn't even live in their backyard where they're hunting. It's, it, it's, it's really ridiculous. It, it'd be like saying, I'm going to start playing baseball and I want to, I'm not going to start hitting till I get in the world series. You know, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. We got to get our reps in and practice and it's always fun. I mean, shooting, you know, in Minnesota here, we have areas where we have unlimited doe permits, you know, so it's, it's, it's still fun to go out and shoot a doe and fill the freezer and, you know, get, uh, get some reps in doing that. It's, there's, it's great, great. If nothing else, it's great practice and it's always fun shooting something with a bow and arrow. And if it's not, you should probably look up a different sport. <laughs> Uh, how often do you think a guy should, you know, practice? I, I know I've known you long enough to know that you shoot just about every day. Uh, archery is how you make your living, uh, both, you know, in the pro shop and, and manufacturing sites and rest. Obviously, the uh, most people can't dedicate that amount of time to it. But, you know, I, when I'm getting ready for a hunt, as soon as the snow melts, I tell myself I'm going to shoot one or two arrows a day no matter what. And I seem to always find time for that. Uh, but I think the average guy probably shoots, you know, once a week and that might be part of the problem. What do you think? So I I think people would be a little shocked to know how little time I spend shooting during the week. I mean, if I, if I spend in aggregate a half hour a week shooting, I'd be surprised, but I do shoot almost every day. Um, you know, kind of my normal routine you know, like everybody, I've got a lot of stuff going on my, with, in my life, doing business and family and kids, going to school and all that kind of stuff in the mornings. Um, sometimes it makes my wife a little irritated, but I can still slip out to the deck and shoot, you know, three or four arrows off the deck every day, no matter what. And I try to do that. And this is the important part. Most people will shy away from bad weather when they're shooting. You know, oh, it's too windy. It's raining, it's snowing too cold i think i think it's helped me out a lot over the years where i just tell myself i'm going to get up every morning and i'm going to shoot you know a handful of arrows off the deck and i don't care what the weather's like because you really then learn you know how everything performs in all those bad situations if you just are unwilling to shoot in those then you're going to be limited to perfect days for hunting too you know and especially when you start getting out west, you're in the mountains on backpack hunts and things like that. Rarely is the weather perfect. So you best know how to handle that stuff when it is really windy or rainy or snowy or all the other stuff that happens when we're out there. And it, and it, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a lot. I'm fortunate. I can shoot out my backyard, but we have tons of our customers who live in Minnesota who shoot in their backyards too, or in their basement, you know, even shooting, I guess that's another whole topic, but even if you can just shoot five or 10 yards in your house, you know, just to work on a release in the garage or in your basement, that's super helpful too. You know, you don't need to be in a formal range to practice shooting your bow. So 
you know, how yeah. much you should shoot, you know, certainly don't destroy your life trying to practice for archery, but, um, I think most people could probably shoot a little bit more than they do. Yeah. I always say winter's a good time. A lot of this is probably is another topic, but um, you know, blind bale shooting in the basement in the middle of winter. If you are trying to perfect your form, just shooting at a few yards with your eyes closed could really teach you a lot about uh, your form and the issues you have. Yep, absolutely, it can. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time. Any other uh, you know closing thoughts on increasing accuracy or? or, you know, dealing with pressure? I guess in light of this conversation, I do have one closing thought. I was talking to who many people think might be the best bow hunter alive right now, Jack Frost from Alaska. And I was talking to him several months ago, and we were just talking about a variety of things. And he said something, the most insightful archery thing I've heard in a long time. He said, you know, Schaefer, he said, when I was starting out bow hunting, we used to all brag to each other about how close we got to something before we killed it. And now things have completely changed where guys are bragging about how far away they've killed things. It's a pretty interesting yep. thing to hear from a, from a really reputable bow hunter. Um, I think, and this is a guy who had, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't realize, you know, if you don't know who Jack Frost is, he lives in Alaska. Uh, you know, he has the North American slam. He's, he's killed, Lots and lots and lots of critters. Probably, you know, certainly can make the argument he's the best bow hunter alive right now. But it was just interesting okay. to hear his sentiment on it. Um, you know, just that, that we used to brag about how close we'd get to things. Now we've gotten ourselves into bragging about how far away we shoot things. Somewhere in the middle is probably the right answer, but it's, uh, you know, we are shooting with bows and arrows that give us nice long seasons because they are primitive weapons. And, you know, the challenge is always to get as close to the stuff as we can, not to shoot stuff as far away as possible. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting thought for sure. It makes people think, because you're right, I think uh, that's just human nature with, with bows increasing in speed and guns more accurate than ever. As soon as someone thinks they can kill an animal, they want to pull the trigger, you know, instead yeah. of trying to slip in a little closer to, to make a better shot. Yep. But that being said, I'm all for practicing really far. Like I said, I, I shoot a hundred yards virtually every day and it's made me a way better archer. You know, when something walks by at 15 yards, it doesn't have a chance. Now at a hundred yards, what, what is your group like at a hundred, <laughs> at a hundred yards? Oh, uh, you know, if it's not super windy, um, you know, I consider a good group about a six inch group at a hundred yards with broadheads, with fixed blade broadheads. Okay. There you go, kids. Something to aim for, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I know I'll never do that, but anyhow. Cool. Well, well, I appreciate awesome. your time and, and your thoughts, and obviously you are an expert in the in this field, so that's, that's cool that you're uh, willing to share your thoughts with the world. So thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks for the time, and good luck. Yeah. Take care. See ya. See ya. To learn more about Schaefer Archery uh, and the XV Arrow Rest that we talked about earlier, visit SchaeferArchery.com. What makes the XV Rest different than all other dropaways is it actually glides away. Instead of dropping uh, one pylon on the left and the pylon on the right actually glide away, it truly is 
unlike anything else out there. And there's high-speed footage of it, uh, of an arrow clearing the rest at over 400 feet a second on the website and on YouTube. So go ahead and check that out at SchaeferArchery.com. To learn more about me, visit TracyBreen.com, T-R-A-C-Y-B-R-E-E-N.com. I use that website to book wild game dinner, speaking events. Also, it's where you can go today if you want to win a bucket of Lucky Buck Mineral. We're going to give away a few. Uh, The first few guys to visit my website and just shoot me an email and say, hey, I want a bucket of Lucky Buck. Uh, I'm going to give away a few buckets of that to lucky listeners. Until the next episode, if you could uh, visit iTunes or Google Play and give me a positive review, I'd appreciate it. Until next time, have a great week.